Good morning. I love to go backpacking. Now, it's been a few years due to having babies and everything, but I look forward to the day that I can get back there out on the trail. And I have found that when you tell people that you love backpacking, you get one of two responses. If you're talking to someone who also loves backpacking, you end up talking about the gear you use and where are your favorite spots and are you a comfort or an ultralight backpacker. But the more common response I get is some form of, I don't understand why you would want to do that. (laughs) And I get it. There are significant downsides to the whole thing. Blisters, sore feet, sleeping on the ground, no indoor plumbing, freeze-dried food, and of course, carrying the heavy pack. These are real negatives. And just because you love backpacking does not mean you've found a way to avoid all of those. Mitigate them minimally, but avoid them, no. With backpacking, pain is just a part of the journey. But here's the thing. Joy breaks through the pain on the trail as well. The freedom of being out in the wilderness with no cell phone or internet or TV. The idea that you get to determine your own steps, climbing a mountain or trekking through a valley. Spending good quality time with the people you're backpacking with. And of course, the amazing views that you get to see. Views so few people get to because you have to hike in three or four or five days to see them. And when you're up there at 14,000 feet in a high mountain meadow, you'd swear that's what heaven looked like. So yes, backpacking is painful. It's part of the trip. There's no way around it. But there are joyous things about backpacking as well. Sure, you have to carry the heavy pack but you also get to witness the great majesty of God's creation. Joy breaks through the pain of the trail. Today is the third Sunday in Advent, the season leading up to celebrating God with us at Christmas. Author and Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge has said that Advent is not for the faint of heart. Perhaps that's because at Advent, the church admits, acknowledges the darkness of this world, sees the things that are broken and knows that they will not all be fixed this side of eternity. This is an important practice as Christians for only in facing the darkness around us are the lights of Christmas truly authentic. So every week in Advent, we've been starting out our teaching portion a little bit darker than normal. And we've been looking at different parts of the Christmas story, how the light of Jesus breaks through amidst the darkness in each one. The first week we looked at Mary, a young Jewish woman living in occupied Israel. Her and her people were longing for God to send the Messiah, to save them from oppression. And in the midst of that longing and despair, the light of hope breaks through when she's promised to bear the Messiah. Mary's story teaches us that the light of hope can meet us in the darkness of our own longing. Last week, we look at the shepherds, how they were living in the midst of what Rome called peace on earth, a peace that came at the cost of war and violence and occupation, a peace that was no peace at all. And then the angels came and spoke to them God's true peace, God's shalom. The shepherd's story teaches us how the light of peace can break through the darkness of this world's hostility and our own fear. 
And this morning we turn to Joseph and the part of the Christmas story that we do not usually tell. This part of the story is perhaps the darkest, but it is through this story that we see how the light of joy can break through in the midst of our sorrow, how joy breaks through the pain in the midst of the pain because of Jesus, our light in the darkness. So if you are willing and able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning from Matthew chapter two, verses 13 through 21. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. The word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, if you're curious where this story lands in the timeline of the nativity story, I hope that this is helpful. Uh, our passage this morning happens after the angel visits Mary, after Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, after Jesus is born and laid in a manger. This happens after the angels speak to the shepherds and directly following the wise men's visit to bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus. And although we aren't sure exactly how long after Jesus's birth the wise men's visit was, we know from the story it was in the first two years of Jesus's life on earth. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus were still living in Bethlehem where they had traveled for the census. But the wise men go first to Herod, the regional king of Judea, and they ask him where they can find the king of the Jews, for they had seen the star and are coming to worship him. Their visit made Herod aware of the birth of the true king of the Jews, and Herod wanted him destroyed. But the wise men didn't report back to Herod, and so all he knew was that this king of the Jews was born somewhere in Bethlehem within the last two years. And so to make certain he was killed, he ordered the massacre of all the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two years and younger. And this would have taken the life of Jesus along with the others, except that this angel comes to Joseph in a dream and warns him and they flee to Egypt. So Joseph takes his family. He leaves behind everyone he knows and most everything he has and seeks refuge in a foreign land. It might have taken them three full days to travel to Egypt, 
for they were beyond Herod's jurisdiction. And we don't know how long Mary and Joseph and Jesus were in Egypt. We just know that they were there until Herod died when an angel of God came to Joseph in another dream and told them to go back to Israel. And just after this passage, the scriptures tell us that Joseph took his family to Nazareth instead of Bethlehem because he was warned in another dream of danger there. Now, we don't usually hear this part of the story at Christmas time. This part of the story doesn't usually make it into sermons or nativity scenes or children's Christmas books. Usually the story we hear jumps through Luke chapters one and two and Matthew chapter two. We usually hear about the angel visiting Mary and we sometimes hear about the angel first visiting Joseph. We hear about the angels proclaiming the births of the shepherds and sometimes about the Magi's visit or at least part of it. But this passage, we don't usually hear this passage. Christmas, after all, is about hope and peace and joy and love. All of these things that are present in the Christmas story, but the Holy Family fleeing for their lives to a foreign country in the massacre of innocence, that's not about any of those things. This part of the story isn't about having a merry little Christmas. It's not about a silent night. No, this story is about nothing other than the darkness of the world. We do not usually hear this part of the story at Christmas because this is not a Christmas story, but it is an Advent story. Advent is a different season from Christmas. And in Advent, the church looks squarely at the brokenness of this world, the death and destruction and sorrow. Advent is not a time for the fanciful idea that all our troubles will be miles away. In Advent, we acknowledge that things are not as they should be. This world with its disproportionate suffering and injustice and loss and pain can never save us. It's far too broken, too cruel. In Advent, we look directly at the darkness until, in the words of Fleming Rutledge, we exclaim, no wonder God had to send Jesus to save us. This story of Joseph's dreams and his family's flight and the massacre of the innocents, this is the culmination of Advent, the darkest point of the night before the dawn. And because we don't normally hear this part of the story, we don't really have a full picture of who Joseph was. Because Joseph really only appears in the nativity stories in Matthew and in Luke. He appears in a little bit of the story of Jesus being presented at the temple and then mentioned briefly when Jesus gets lost, when he's 12. But Joseph is not mentioned at all in the Gospel of Mark. He's only mentioned in the Gospel of John when Jesus identify, when people identify Jesus as the son of Joseph. And no line of his is ever recorded in the Bible. The primary passage in which Joseph appears is this one. And it gives us this fuller picture of who he was. And this story teaches us that Joseph was a man who consistently heard from God and who oriented his life around what God told him. He was obedient to what God told him to do. He was a man loyal to his family, doing anything he had to to keep them safe. And he was a man of dreams, 
So much so that scripture tells us that angels visit him four times within 26 verses. And that's reminiscent of another Joseph in scripture, isn't it? The Joseph of multi-technicolor dream coat fame. And that story of Joseph is found in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And these stories have similarities that I think are helpful here. If you look at this table, we see these. Joseph, in the book of Matthew, was the son of a man named Jacob. We see this in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, Joseph in Genesis was also the son of a man named Jacob. Joseph in the gospel of Matthew frequently heard from God in dreams and Joseph in Genesis frequently had dreams and he could interpret the dreams of others. Joseph in the gospel of Matthew saved his family by bringing them out of Israel into Egypt. And similarly, Joseph in the Old Testament saved his family when they, they were fleeing from famine in Israel and he provided them food in Egypt. Both Josephs are involved in stories much bigger than their own. God partners with both of them to help protect the people, the family of God. And both Josephs, it is their obedience that is vital to the redemptive work that God is doing in the world. But the story of Joseph with his technicolored dream code is not the only Old Testament passage referenced in this scripture this morning. Because just, as, just after Herod orders the massacre of the innocents, the Gospel of Matthew says this, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they're no more. And this is taken directly from the Old Testament from the prophet Jeremiah in verse 31, uh, chapter 31, verse 15. And in this picture of sorrow, Rachel, who's the wife of Jacob and the mother of Joseph, is portrayed as a kind of national mother of Israel, refusing to be consoled because her children, the people of Israel, were pillared and plundered and taken into slavery in Babylon. And the author of Matthew knows these prophets' words well, and he claims that that's not only true about centuries earlier when the people are taken into captivity, but it's also true about Jesus's day when the boys of Bethlehem were killed because the agony and the sorrow of both stories are similar. Both are a result of Israel being occupied by a foreign power. And both the plundering and pillaging and slavery of the people of Egypt by the Babylonians and the massacre of innocent babies in Bethlehem, both show nothing other than the evil and darkness of this world and a people in desperate need of a savior. So why preach about this passage on the third Sunday of Advent? After all, the third, third Sunday of Advent is about joy. We light the joy candle, and it could be argued that joy is nowhere to be found in this passage. But I would argue differently for two reasons. First, the author of Matthew quotes these words from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. And if you were to turn the the pages of your Bible back to that chapter and read it, you would indeed see that Jeremiah is talking about the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of this world. But when it seems like he's not gonna speak about anything else, the prophet dares to speak of joy. They will come with weeping 
He says in the words of God, of Yahweh, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And just like a breathtaking view at the top of a high mountain pass after a grueling day backpacking, joy breaks through amidst the pain of the trail. Because the joy of our God is rebellious like that, refusing to let darkness have the only say. So the first reason I would argue that joy appears in our passage this morning is because the author of Matthew references this passage a veiled reference to future joy for any who, anyone who would dare to see it. The second reason I would argue that joy can be found in this passage has to do with the complex idea of joy in Scripture. There's not just one definition in Scripture of joy, and the idea is rather complex. Using multiple different words in Hebrew and in Greek, in our culture, we would probably say that joy and happiness that it's a good feeling within us. And there's definitely scriptures that talk about that. It's a legitimate definition according to scripture. But the most compelling definition of joy, image of joy in scripture, in my opinion, is different from that. This particular idea of joy isn't a good feeling that comes within us, it's a gift from God that God brings when God's presence is with us in the midst of darkness. This kind of joy shows up all throughout the scriptures because the people of God know it really well. Time and again, they've seen that God is faithful to show up in the midst of darkness and they expect that God then will show up again and again and again. Sometimes when God shows up, God brings complete deliverance. You think of the story of God parting the Red Sea and the people of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. God's presence brought extreme joy and jubilation and deliverance from their darkness. But other times, arguably most of the time in Scripture, God's presence coming into people's darkness doesn't look like complete deliverance. You think of, of when the people were wandering in the desert for 40 years. God was present with them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Not bringing complete deliverance, for they wandered for 40 years. But they were brought joy because they were not left alone in their darkness. One of the most well-known Psalms speaks of this kind of joy. Psalm 30 says, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In other words, sorrow and pain and suffering, that's a part of life. You can count on it just as much as you can count on nighttime coming every 24 hours. But just as the sun rose yesterday, we can count on the sun rising again tomorrow. Just as God showed up in the past, we can count on God showing up again in the future. And that presence of God sparks joy in the people of God. God in our darkness. Perhaps that's why the joy of the Lord can be our strength. Have you ever wondered why it was the joy of the Lord that is our strength? How can a good feeling be something that gives you strength? Feelings come and go. Feelings are dependent upon the circumstances of life that we find ourselves in, they shatter easily. But the joy of the presence of God, now that sounds like strength to me. 
God has shown up in the past. God will show up again in the future, and that is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And this is why I would argue that joy shows up in our story this morning. Because in the midst of darkness, God shows up again and again and again. In fact, the most consistent theme in Joseph's life is probably that God shows up. For no matter what he's going through, messengers from God come to him in dreams. When his fiancee Mary got pregnant and it seemed she had been unfaithful to him, God showed up. When evil seemed to rage against the plans of God and Joseph's family was threatened, God showed up. After what might have been years of living in a foreign land with little hope of returning, God showed up. And when Joseph might have walked right back into life-threatening danger, God showed up. And when God shows up in the midst of darkness, that sparks joy in the people of God. Joy is present in this story because no matter what Joseph faces in the midst of fear and danger and loss and unspeakable sorrow, God showed up. In the darkest parts of Joseph's story, God shows up and reminds Joseph that he is not alone. And that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? That God showed up into our darkness. That while we were still broken, God came for us to be Emmanuel, God with us, a light in our darkness. And that brings us, the people of God, joy. So what does this mean for us this Advent season? I was talking to one of my best friends the other day, and she was updating me on some things in her life. Her parents' bad health and continued treatment, her father-in-law being hospitalized once again, her mother-in-law's mystery illness that the doctor still can't figure out what's going on. And she said to me, no wonder I don't feel the joy of Christmas. Everyone around me is suffering. My mom told me the other day about an interesting conversation she had with the cashier at the grocery store. My mom tends to go to the same grocery store and she goes grocery shopping and tends to go to the same line in the grocery store. So she's gotten to know this cashier a little bit. And she asked him if he had plans for Christmas and he replied, I'm not doing Christmas this year. And when she asked him why, he said, I'm still mad at him. He took my mother the day after Christmas last year. And my mom, who's experienced her own amount of loss in the last three years, expressed sympathy. And he said to her, you at least have kids to celebrate with. I've got my sister, but she's going through cancer treatment. I'm all alone. I'm not doing Christmas this year. Sometimes this season leading up to Christmas doesn't feel like a season leading up to Christmas at all. It feels like Christmas is suddenly here and we've got to get on board or we're not going to feel the magic of Christmas and we're doing it wrong. And there's this pressure to push all that down, push all the pain and suffering down and out of the picture, pretend like it's not there so we can feel the joy of Christmas or we don't do it at all. And at some point, we as the global church have failed to tell the Christmas story. If people like my friend or that cashier feel like they can't celebrate, 
in whatever season they're going through. Because the joy of the Christmas story is that God came into our darkness, that God came for us, and the true joy of Christmas is found in the presence of God, no matter what else is going on. And when we read the nativity story, the whole nativity story, we see that it's not only okay, but completely appropriate. If the only joy at Christmas that you have is that God is with us in our darkness. And that's why I have come to love Advent. Advent is not a time for the fanciful idea that all our troubles will be miles away. In Advent, we acknowledge the darkness, the brokenness, the sorrow, and we acknowledge that it may not be made all right this side of eternity. Because in Advent, we realize that we are living in the now and not yet of God's kingdom. We're living between the first coming of Jesus at Christmas and the second coming of Jesus at the end of all things, where everything will be made right. And in the meantime, we're left with that longing for the light. <laughs> but we're not left in that longing alone. To put it another way, in Advent, we look back to when Jesus showed up and we know that Jesus can show up again. We expect him to show up again and again and again. That is the joy of Christmas. So for some of you this morning, this sermon caught you completely off guard. <laughs> Perhaps because this may be a season of typical Christmas joy for you, and that's okay. It's okay to find joy in the lights and the presents and the tree. It's okay to celebrate with food and good friends and family. That kind of joy is spoken about in scripture too, and it's to be celebrated. And maybe if that's you this year, there's a way that you can invite others into that if they don't have those things. One thing I love about my mom is she is a true pastor. And when the cashier said that to her, she invited him to our family Christmas. So I don't know if he's gonna come, but I'll keep you updated. Maybe this is your reminder to be in Sarah Bessie's words, Jesus was skin on for a few people this Christmas. But if you don't feel that kind of joy this Christmas, that's okay too. If you, like the cashier, are thinking you just can't do Christmas, please know that no matter what you are going through or carrying, no matter what you are mourning, you do not need to push it down or ignore it or pretend it's not there. In this last week leading up to Christmas, May you be reminded that Jesus is no stranger to the pains and sorrows of this world. And he doesn't ask you to hide that. Instead, Jesus wants to be with you in it this Christmas. Advent is a bold reminder that no matter what you're going through, Jesus can come into that darkness with you. Advent is a bold reminder that although all our suffering and sorrow may not be made right this side of eternity, we are not left alone in it. Advent is a bold reminder that God's joy doesn't require us to ignore pain and brokenness around us or within us. 
Advent reminds us that just as God showed up in the past, we can know that God will show up again. Just as God showed up on a Christmas night long ago, God can show up this Christmas and will show up in the future to make all things right. And while that may not fill us with the warm and happy feeling of joy, it can remind us of the presence of God with us, the light in our darkness. And that kind of joy teaches us that the joy of the Lord can be our strength. Because in life, like in backpacking, pain is just a part of the journey. There's no way around it. But in life, like in backpacking, joy breaks through amidst the pain because of Christmas, because of God with us then and now, because of the beautiful name of Jesus, our light in the darkness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us. That you came as a light to our darkness. And in this last week before Christmas, may we experience you with us. And may that spark the light of joy in us, your people. And as more and more light pours forth from the Advent candles, as light builds little by little, week by week, may we pay attention to that because that's what you do for us and that's who you are for us. Jesus, our true light in the darkness. Amen. <laughs>